You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, if you've ever wondered if God has a sense of humor, you need look no further than the book of Jonah. The Lord God Almighty commands Jonah to go east to Nineveh, and Jonah catches the very next ship heading west. Why? Because Jonah knows God wants him to call for the Ninevites to repent. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the evil empire to the people of Israel. The Assyrians had conquered Israel some years earlier, destroyed many of their cities, and taken their best and brightest away into exile. To say that the Assyrians were hated by the Israelites would be the understatement of the year. In fact, the entire purpose of the Old Testament book of Nahum is to describe in gory detail the wickedness of the city of Nineveh and to revel in the thought of its eventual destruction. So it's no surprise that Jonah wasn't keen on heading off to Nineveh to preach to these enemies of Israel. The very idea of their repentance is unthinkable, not only because it would be so totally unexpected, but because they would be the last people in the world that any Israelite would want God to forgive. God's asking Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh would be as if a Jew who had lost family in the Holocaust were asked to undertake a mission to Nazi Germany. Once Jonah boards the ship, he causes trouble for the captain and the crew, has to be thrown overboard, and is swallowed by a giant fish. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he finally turns to God and prays for deliverance. And God listens. And God responds, making the fish spew Jonah out upon the dry land. As Frederick Buechner writes, Jonah's relief at being delivered from the fish can hardly have been greater than the fishes at being delivered from Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And this time, Jonah obeys, albeit grudgingly. He cries out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. But then it happens. In spite of his own reluctance, in spite of his minimal efforts and lack of enthusiasm, uh, in spite of the fact that he's a stranger preaching words of judgment, Jonah's worst nightmare comes true. He actually wins over his audience with an eight-word sermon, no less. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's only five words. The king and the people of Nineveh and even the animals actually repent when they hear of God's impending judgment so that God changes his mind about condemning the city. 
The irony continues with Jonah's reaction to the success of his preaching. You know, when God uses a preacher as an instrument of revival, it's usually the preacher who's the most overjoyed. But Jonah is very displeased and became angry, and his anger leads to unhealthy reactions. God has worked a miracle through Jonah, but Jonah's reaction is, shoot. That's just like God, isn't it? To go soft and forgive those horrible sinners. I mean, I was afraid he was going to pull a stunt like this. Imagine being merciful and gracious to barbarians like these. But in this divine comedy, the joke is on Jonah, for this is precisely what happens. And Jonah is angry enough to die. His anger is assuaged when God appoints a bush to give him some shade, but it returns with a vengeance when God appoints a worm to attack the bush and the sun beats down on Jonah's head. His anger blinds him from seeing the greater good, that God is concerned about a great city with more than 120,000 people. Anger affects our way of seeing. That's why when we get furious, we say that we see red, or, or we're so angry that we can't see straight. The funny thing about the book of Jonah is that everyone else in the story, God, the reader, uh, the sailors, even the Ninevites, all see more clearly than Jonah, whose anger colors the way he views things. How we see makes a huge difference. At first glance, it might seem obvious that anger or wrath is something that we should avoid, especially after reading the story of Jonah. But when we take a closer look, we see that it's not that simple. You know, of all the vices, anger is, seems to be perched right on the edge between good and evil. The Apostle Paul tells us, be angry and do not sin. In other words, sin does not necessarily flow from anger. Of all the vices, this is the one that can be a good, virtuous thing. We don't treat any of the other sins with that much respect. You wouldn't say, be envious and do not sin, or be greedy and do not sin. You never hear of righteous gluttony or just lust. However, we do speak of righteous anger. In fact, much of the great good in our world is achieved through righteous anger. The Bible certainly reserves a place for this kind of anger. The prophets rail against injustice. And the Gospels describe a very angry Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple. So it's clear that righteous anger is sanctioned by God. Appropriate anger is a passion that moves us to justice, to doing good, to protecting those who are threatened or being abused. But anger isn't always just. Anger can be both good and bad, virtue and vice, the danger is that anger by its nature can easily get out of control 
and morph into bitterness, hatred, cruelty, and violence. So although much of the good in the world has been achieved through anger, so has much of the evil. One problem with anger is that it so easily loses control. In fact, that's one way we describe getting furious. We say, sorry, I just lost it. We can easily lose sense of any perspective or control or justice, leading to bitterness and resentment. Novelist Anne Lamott says that hanging unto resentments is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It's because we have a tendency to hold on to anger that Paul counsels, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think it was um, Phyllis Diller who once said, never go to bed mad, stay up and fight. But I think Paul's advice is a bit more helpful and healthy. So how do we find freedom from the deadly sin of anger? Well, one way is through one of the fruits of the Spirit, patience. Here's what the Thoughtful Christian Study Guide says about patience. Patience is not just a nice action. It's the medicine that heals anger. It's the power to transform a situation so it's no longer dominated by sin. Patience sometimes is misunderstood as namby-pamby, an insistence that we passively accept evil treatment. But Christians have traditionally understood it as mercy and forbearance that dissolve anger. Patience uses a kind of spiritual jujitsu against someone and offers back good humor or kindness. Instead of inflaming a difficult situation, patience brings light and understanding. So we need to have a combination of patience humility, and forgiveness. Pastor and author Martin Copenhaver says, it's just as simple and just as challenging as that. Resisting the sin of anger requires enough patience to know that other people are not perfect, enough humility to know that we are not either, and enough forgiveness to be able to move on when those imperfections are made manifest. Patience humility, and forgiveness. It's just as simple and just as challenging as that. Patience is a key ingredient, ingredient that can free us from anger, but we need a certain kind of patience, not the kind of patience that accepts injustice, but rather the patience that God displays where he is slow to anger and shows mercy and kindness to the whole world and especially to Jonah. In chapter 4, notice the irony of Jonah's anger over the death of a plant when God has been so slow to anger at Jonah himself. God's patience is displayed in the kindness he shows to everyone. Patience and kindness, both fruits of the Spirit, are intertwined. So let's review what we've covered so far. Anger can be good or bad, 
Jonah shows us an example of bad anger that leads to resentment. God shows us how we can have freedom from this kind of anger through patience, which leads to kindness. And kindness is not just a way of acting, it's a way of seeing. There's a difference between watching something and really seeing something. Let me show you by way of a TV ad my alma mater has shown during football games. You see a place that's alive with purpose and passion. You see a place inspired by a long tradition of untraditional excellence. You see a place built by the people, for the people, of California, the nation, and the world. What do you see? You see Berkeley. My wife told me I'd get in trouble for showing that video in this neighborhood. <laughs> but as a proud alum of UC Berkeley, I like that commercial. It brings back many happy memories of when I was a student. But I'm also aware that we are right in Husky country, right? We're right across the street from the University of Washington. The video asks, what do you see? Now, we all watched the same thing, but chances are you didn't see the same things that I did when we watched that video, because you weren't looking through my eyes and with my memories. It's the difference between simply watching something and really seeing something. For those of you not associated with my school, you answer differently when asked, what do you see? That happens a lot. It's amazing how people can see the same things differently, how strong emotions can color the way we view a situation. In the Gospels, it's clear Jesus is a prophet who's able to see things the rest of us often overlook. We often see people through the labels that the world puts on them. Jesus sees the world through graceful eyes. When we start to see people as Jesus sees them, with eyes full of grace, we start to become more patient, which leads us to become more kind. When we talk about kindness, we're talking about something outside of us, which comes to us as a gift. My preaching professor, Tom Long, says, in the Bible, before kindness is a way of acting, it's a way of seeing other people made possible only in the light of Jesus Christ. From now on, we don't look at other people from a human point of view. We see them in the light of Christ. We see them as God intends them to be. The Jews have a wonderful saying that if you had eyes to see for every person you meet, you could see angels in front of them announcing, make way for the image of God. Make way for the image of God. To see other people not with anger, but with eyes full of grace in the light of Jesus Christ is to see not only who they are in the moment, but who they will be in God's future. Kindness is a refusal to treat people according to how they're seen in the light of culture and an insistence on treating them in the light of Jesus Christ. 
What does it look like to see people as Jesus sees them, to treat people with patience and kindness? Well, let me share with you an example. Apartheid, meaning separateness in Afrikaans, was a legalized system of racial segregation that was ruthlessly and efficiently enforced by the South African government between the years 1948 to 1994. Jim Wallace of Sojourners International tells a story that happened in the days of apartheid. Wallace was with Bishop Desmond Tutu as he was plotting a campaign against Pretoria. The rally they had planned had just been canceled by the government. So Tutu said, all right, we're going to have church instead. Try to cancel that. Well, the government didn't cancel their church service, so they had worship at a small cathedral. Outside, the authorities started to gather. There were three times as many police and military outside the church as believers inside. Wearing riot gear and carrying automatic weapons, they were there hoping to intimidate the worshipers. And for Wallace, at least, it was working. Well, a time came when Tutu was about to give the sermon, and he got behind the pulpit, and he started to preach. And the South African security police and soldiers broke down the doors in the back, marched into the church, and lined the walls of the cathedral. And they held tape recorders and pads in their hands, and they challenged Tutu. They were saying to him, be prophetic, be bold, go ahead. We're going to get it all down, and we're going to put you right back in jail, and this time we're going to keep you there. They were challenging the people of God. They were essentially saying, we own this place. We own this country. We own your religion. We own you. And we even own your God. At that point, Tutu had stopped preaching and very patiently was just looking at his Bible. And he slowly looked up at the soldiers and he gazed at them from side to side. And then he said, you're powerful, very powerful, but you are not God. And I serve a God who will not be mocked. And then he smiled. My wife and I had an opportunity to go see and hear Desmond Tutu when he came to Seattle a few years ago. And we'll never forget that big Desmond Tutu smile. If you've ever seen it, you know what I mean. I mean, when he smiles, he literally beams. So Tutu looked at the soldiers and he smiled. Um, he actually started to laugh a little bit because he knew how the story ends. He knew who is ultimately victorious. He smiled, and then he said, so, since you have already lost, we invite you today to come and join the winning side. And the place just erupted, and, and young people started uh, chanting and dancing, and the police moved 
back because they did not expect dancing, rejoicing worshipers. And, you know, I don't know if there were any Presbyterians in church that day, but, but I guarantee you if they were, they were dancing too, even if it was, if it was just on the inside. And the worshipers, they moved the soldiers out of the church and into the streets. And for a moment, both sides not only saw each other just as they are, but as they will be in God's kingdom come. Well, ten long years later, apartheid was finally dismantled, and Wallace was at the inauguration of President Nelson Mandela, a black South African who had been in prison for almost 30 years for his anti-apartheid activities. You know, Mandela invited his white jailer to come to his inauguration as his honored guest. And Desmond Tutu was the master of ceremonies. And it was a huge party for South Africa. And Wallace asked Tutu, if he remembered that day at the church, and Tutu smiled. With the eyes of faith, they had been able to see this party 10 years before. With the eyes of faith, he and others were able to use righteous anger and patience and patiently work to change the system. What do you see? What do I see? Are we seeing through Jonah's eyes and letting our anger build up resentment and bitterness in our lives? Or are we seeing with God's eyes, leading us to patience and kindness that frees us from such anger? Amazing things happen when we accept the rule of Christ in the present and when we catch a vision of all that the reign of Christ can be in the future. So be angry when your anger is righteous. Be patient when you want freedom from unrighteous anger. And be kind by seeing the world through God's eyes. Uh, I, I saw a Facebook post recently. It said, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. If you like uh, three-point sermons, here are my three points for today. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we're grateful that when you look at us, when you look at humanity, you see us not only as we are, but as we really can be, through you. Thank you that we can experience patience and kindness that frees us from unrighteous anger. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.